All right, heads with me one more time as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we are ignorant of who you are, of all your purposes, of your character, of your glory, of your salvation, of your judgment, outside of your self-revelation in Scripture. We don't know. Even when we do know, we don't know as we ought to know. And so we need your Spirit who breathed out Scripture, who carried along the men who wrote it, to descend on us now so that we can understand it. So would you pour out your Spirit on your people, on all of us, to speak and hear to understand, to believe, to be persuaded, to obey, to love. Would you say, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth, and so we pray, make us hungry now for your scriptures. May your word not come back to you void, but may it accomplish every purpose for which you send it this morning now. For Jesus' sake, amen. For many Christians, it feels like the world is trying harder and harder these days to confine the spread and effects of the message of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. The narrative may begin with the enlightenment of the 1700s, which threw off all inherited authorities to create our own moral and spiritual realities from scratch without having to listen to anybody else who has come before us. The naturalism and empiricism and rationalism of the 18 and 1900s encourages us to believe that only what we could see or test or reproduce in a scientific experiment. The skepticism, experientialism of the late 20th and 21st centuries tells us to believe only what we feel or experience. And since everyone feels and experiences everything differently, there must be as many truths out there as there are people. And so the modern creed becomes, love is love, kindness is everything, judge not lest you be judged, all of which today boils down to live and let live, or you do you. In the new worldview, the only sin is not being true to yourself. That is the good news according to the world, to the world's gospel. The world's gospel contradicts or at least tries to confine Jesus' authority as either Savior or judge of all the world. The Bible still broadcasts the message of repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but the spirit of this age tries to scramble that frequency and tries to broadcast a different gospel on a different channel using different advertisements to get your attention. On that channel, you can say that love is love as long as what you mean is that love is whatever anyone feels it to be. On that channel, you can say God is love. If what you actually mean is that love is a better God than the God of the Bible in the way that the Bible talks about His love. You can even talk of Jesus on that channel, his moral excellence and social ethic, as long as that ethic expresses no disapproval and expresses even no definition of immorality. But to talk of Jesus' divinity, to talk of his crucifixion as atoning for your real sins that really do offend a real God, outside of your imagination in heaven, a God you can't control or manipulate. To talk of Jesus' physical resurrection as God's vindication of Jesus' identity and righteousness and authority. To call people to repent of their favorite sins and trust in Christ alone for forgiveness and reconciliation to God. To call people to repent of their own opinions of God that disagree with how God 
expresses himself in Scripture. To repent of that intellectual pride, to call people to do that. That has become heard today as hate speech, unfit for public consumption. You don't get to broadcast that on the world's radio frequency. That's unwelcome. And it'll get you pulled off the air as threatening our perceived authority and right to be ourselves as we define ourselves. Hey, I'm trying to do me here. You do you is the new religion. You do you is sacrosanct. Why? Because you have decided that you are sacrosanct. You don't mess with me. You don't mess with my opinions and my feelings and my experiences and my hurts and sorrows as I define them. And God better not mess with them either. Or I won't believe in Him. Now, of course, all this feels very unique to our own time and place in the modern West. The truth, however, is that the world has tried to confine the gospel ever since the gospel was first published. The question, though, is has the world ever succeeded at confining the gospel? After all, it's still around. And will the world ever finally confine the gospel? We'll see about that from Acts 5, 12 to 42 this morning. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Acts 5, 12 to 42. Acts 5, 12 to 42. We'll walk through the story together. We'll draw some implications and the point of the story, the implications of that point, and the applications as well. We'll read it piecemeal since it's a little bit long. And in order to preserve the irony and wonder and suspense of the story as Luke tells it. So we'll start by reading verses 12 to 16 in chapter 5. Acts 5, 12 to 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. People also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Wow. Well, the church had asked God in chapter 4, verse 30, grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And here in chapter 5, verse 12, God is still answering that prayer. Signs and wonders are happening, miraculous healing as the apostles lay hands on the sick and paralyzed. The church is together in one assembly and one mindset in Solomon's portico outside the temple and and while outsiders to Christian community are intimidated by all the power they're seeing. I mean, can you imagine the stories coming out of Solomon's portico? But they also respect the community they see There's power there, and I'm not sure I want to mess with it. But they're good people, and I respect them. I respect how they're living. Whole crowds of adult converts are being added. Qualitative and quantitative growth is happening at the same time, while the public watches with respect from a safe distance. I don't want any of that, but that's impressive. This is all happening in public. Families carry their sick and demonize into the streets, hoping Peter's presence will heal them like an Old Testament prophet walking by. It all seems so ideal. And yet not everybody is happy for the church. Verses 17 to 21. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. 
So while the apostles and disciples are still full of the Spirit, from, verses, from chapter 431, and they're filling up with a multitude of new people, physical healings. Meanwhile, the chief priests and the Sadducees, in verse 17, are filling up with jealousy. They're jealous of the apostles' power, popularity with the people, their respect, and their influence among the public, which they think, hey, we're supposed to be getting that. We're the leaders of these people. So in verse 18, because the apostles are laying hands on people to heal them, the priests lay hands on apostles to arrest them. As the people put their sick on pallets for people to heal them, the priests put the apostles in prison. And while Peter is freeing people from sickness, the priests are constricting the apostles' freedom. And so it looks like the authorities are taking control. But not for long. It doesn't last, does it? It doesn't even last overnight. Because in verse 19, an angel of the Lord takes control. He opens the prison doors. He led them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That's eternal life, a new quality of life now, reconciled to God, forgiven of their sins, willing and able to obey Him, and also eternal duration of life in the world to come after we die, all by faith alone, in Christ alone, who secured this life for us by His sinless life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection. And the nature of these words, this life, That's the reason the apostolic preaching is accompanied by physical healings. The power behind those healings is the message of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to eternal life. So those healings of verses 12 to 16 illustrate and attest to the life-giving nature of the gospel message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead to give us new life in Him. Angel tells him, go, stand in the temple, speak all the words of this life. And verse 21, Peter and John waste no time in obeying. They go right into the temple early in the morning at daybreak, and they teach the gospel there. Verses 21 to 26. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together this council of the Senate of all the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. <laughs> but they're not there! <laughs> But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So, Peter and John enjoy a jailbreak led by an angel. They go back into the temple as they're told. They speak all the words of this life. They're standing in the temple. Meanwhile, the chief priests and Sadducees are convening a special meeting of the council, and they send to the prison to have the apostles led out of the prison. But here again is one of those moments in the narrative when we know something that the bad guys don't know. They don't know that the angel busted the apostles out of prison, so they're in for a disappointment at what they find or don't find in the prison cell. The leaders think they're leading the people here. Hey, 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 order, order in the temple. We've got to tamp this down. We've got to take control. They think they're getting ready to have the apostles let out and Luke wants you to be laughing at them as you're watching this. Like, <laughs> they don't know. They don't know. Those guys are going to an empty jail cell. It is comic futility of the antagonists. It's a circus. So what happens next? Well, verse 22, servants finally get to the prison. They find that the apostles are nowhere to be found, at least not in the prison. So they go back to the priests and Sadducees empty-handed, and then they tell them, Look, guys, we did what you said, but we found the prison cell shut and all secured and the prison guards standing at the door, but when we opened the doors, we found no one inside. Well, this is perplexing. They're confused. 
captain of the temple guard and the chief priests have no idea what to make of this report, and they're wondering where all this is heading. And putting it that way is Luke's way of saying to us as readers, where do you guys think this is heading? Next thing they know, verse 25, another messenger arrives breathless to announce that, behold, the people you put in prison didn't stay put where you put them. And they put themselves precisely where you told them not to put themselves, in the temple teaching. Your guards are still standing over an empty prison while the guys they're supposed to be standing guard over are standing in the temple where you told them not to stand. Ha ha. You see how he's using all those little verbs, all that language? It's all ironic. It's all, it's all making fun of people who are trying to confine and oppose the gospel, and it's making light of them. It's like, oh, you, you think you're so powerful. You think you're so special. You think you're a big shot. Watch this. So much for the authority and leadership of the Sanhedrin, the big shots. So in verse 26, the soldiers and servants traipse off to the temple to rearrest the apostles. Oh, guess, guess we got to do our job over again and lead them back to the Sanhedrin. But this time, they do it without lights and sirens, no handcuffs, no rough stuff, because now they're not just confused by the situation in verse 24, they're scared of getting stoned by the people in verse 26. They're scared of creating mob violence against them. After all, the apostles had developed all this public goodwill by healing grandma and grandpa. Mom and dad, little Joey and Davey, they're not sick anymore because of the apostles. And now you're going to lead them off in handcuffs? No, 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 not on my watch. And they know it. The temple guard knows it. He knows what side his bread's buttered on. So he says, okay, we better do this quiet, all right? Could you just come this way, please, Mr. Peter? Could you accompany us? 27 to 32, and when they had brought them... And they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you. I mean, that's just funny by now. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So verse 27, after leading them into the Sanhedrin, they stand them up again for another deposition. Starting to sound familiar from chapter 4. It's getting all too familiar to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders of the temple in verse 28. We told you, we literally, we commanded you a command. That's how the original Greek reads. We commanded you a command. They're really standing on their authority here. Hey, we gave you a specific command. That wasn't a request. Not to speak any more in this name. And behold, look at you. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to lead Onto us, the blood of this man, Jesus. Would you stop it already? But the apostles are not backing down in verse 29 just because they get hauled back into the deposition room. It's necessary to obey God more than men, they say. So the authorities command the apostles to back down. Instead, they double down. In verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you murdered by stringing him up on a tree. The authorities just expressed, I mean, read the room, Peter, right? Like, can't you be just a little bit political? Can't you be just a little bit like, do you know who you're talking to here? I'm starting to get afraid for you. They just expressed resentment at the apostles accusing them of murdering Jesus, but the apostles now double down on that accusation. I know, I know you're concerned that we're bringing the blood of this man Jesus on you because you murdered him. That's why. You literally hung Jesus out to dry. 
And here the word translated killed is related to the word for hand. It has, has the word hand in it. You laid violent hands on him, on Jesus, to kill him. So, follow the hands. The apostles lay healing hands on the sick. So the Jewish leaders lay hands on the apostles to arrest them, just as they laid violent hands on Jesus, resulting in his judicial murder on the cross. But God, here's the climax of the hands, God exalted Jesus to his right hand in heaven as leader and savior, attested by the apostolic healings and sermons. Jesus is God's chosen leader, not you guys who are trying to confine the gospel, no matter how many times you lead us into prison or into court. Jesus is leader, not you, no matter how many times you arrest us. That's why God's angel led us out of the prison you led us into. Yet as bold and defiant as the apostles are, they remain gracious. They still hold out the offer of forgiveness in Christ. Why did God raise Jesus to his right hand? To give repentance to Israel, to you guys, they say. And forgiveness of sins. And we are witness of, the, of, this, of these words. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God gave to those who obey him. The offer of repentance and forgiveness of sins still stands, even mercifully, for those who crucified Jesus. You see, they're not letting him off the hook. You murdered him. But they're offering them forgiveness. Hey, he was raised to God's right hand to give you repentance of that sin and to forgive you and all of us if we'll believe in him. The authorities can still turn to obey Jesus. So how will they respond to such bold but gracious preaching? Well, sadly, they still expect everybody to obey them, to agree with their perspective, to defend their honor, to defend their opinion, to defend their way of interpreting the Bible and their own experience, to preserve their authority while they refuse to obey God and to agree with God that they're wrong about Jesus. They're wrong about how they're reading the Old Testament. They're wrong about how they're reading the Bible. And they're wrong about how they're reading the apostles. And yet, ironically enough, they themselves are getting ready to obey man, not God. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who, were, who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to to overthrow them, you might even be found opposing God. Verse 24, they were confused. Verse 26, they were afraid. Now in verse 33, they are furious. Why are they furious? They're furious because they think of themselves as the leaders of Israel. And Peter is telling them that the risen Lord Jesus is the leader of Israel, whom they killed. And Peter himself seems to be gathering quite a following for Jesus among the people that the Jewish leaders thought they were leading. The apostles are speaking the word of life in Christ, and the priests want to kill him for it. 
But thankfully, a cooler head prevails. But that's not to the credit of the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel's got pull in the Sanhedrin, not because he's a good man, but because he's got popular opinion behind him. The council listens to Gamaliel because he's got the pulse of the people who they are scared to offend. These guys are corrupt. These leaders are doing anything but leading. They follow popular opinion. So Gamaliel tries to put the, persp- to put the situation in context for the hotheads. We've seen this movie before, guys. Remember Thutis and Judas a few years back? They each gained separate followings at different times, both numbered in the hundreds. But Thutis and Judas were both killed, their followers dispersed, and their movements came to nothing. So chill out. How about we take a recess here? In fact, you better leave Peter and John alone. After all, if their movement is merely man-made, it'll fizzle out, just like Judas and Thutis. But on the outside chance that this is from God, and you kill them, you will be found fighting against God himself. And that's a risk I don't think you want to take. So, what do the leaders do? They follow. (laughs) They just do what he said. Hmm. Okay. They obeyed him. That's the word. So, they took his advice. It's one word. Obeyed him. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So they follow his counsel. They obey him. These leaders are not leading like they think they are. But to save face in verse 40, they call in the apostles for a good horse whipping. They command them yet again not to speak in the name of Jesus. And yet again, they let him walk. As angry as they are, as much as they disapprove of the apostles, they remain confused by the situation, they remain afraid of the crowds, and they remain susceptible to whatever logic consolidates their own power. Contrast that with the apostles telling the authorities to their face, we must obey God rather than man. Even in the examples Gamaliel gave, both Thutis and Judas draw men after them who literally obey or follow them, same word, but what does the council do? They follow and obey Gamaliel as if he's another Thutis or Judas. That's what Luke's telling you by telling the story that way. So how do the apostles respond to all this? Do they obey the council and keep the whole Jesus thing on the down low? Oh man, they're really serious about this. We better, we better quiet down. Also, we might lose our tax exemption. No, they don't quiet down, and neither do they lodge a formal complaint. They don't submit a police report. They don't press charges for wrongful imprisonment or brutality, even though this beating was probably the 39 lashes with a leather whip. They don't fight for their rights. They don't throw a pity party for themselves about how much they're sacrificing for Jesus or how much the whipping hurt or how they're disillusioned by having to suffer for loyalty to Jesus when other religious people are mistreating them. And they're not complaining about, oh, this isn't really what I signed up for because I thought Jesus was supposed to be the solution to all my problems. I thought he was supposed to make my life better and easier. I mean, it's not even close. It's not even the same ballpark. Look there in verse 41. They went away rejoicing from the face of the Sanhedrin because they were counted worthy to be dishonored, shamed, disgraced, excluded on behalf of the name of Jesus. 
Man, if you're not a real Christian, you will never feel like that. Counted worthy. By who? By God himself. By Jesus. But worthy to be dishonored for the name? And that sounds an awful lot like an oxymoron. Worthy to be dishonored. We don't talk like that. Uh, You, you are worthy to be dishonored. What if I said that to you? I think you would say, "Uh, I don't know what you mean, but no, I'm not. (laughs) Because I don't want to be dishonored. What kind of upside down idea is this? Worthy to be dishonored. Well, Jesus suffered the shame of the cross for us first. So there is a special fellowship with him that can only be experienced by sharing in his sufferings. Ah, Jesus is calling you into his sufferings. He wants you to know him there in that way. He wants your solidarity with him there. He wants you to experience fellowship with him there through his sorrows, through other people's sins against him. He wants you to know that side of him. Ah, that's a privilege. Do the apostles lay low for a while until the persecution passes? Do they take a little time to lick their wounds? Maybe they go on a vacation down to Cyprus? Nope. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and evangelizing that the Christ is Jesus. The Sanhedrin cease and desist means nothing to the apostles. Even after a beating, a whipping, I mean, you know those movies that you have seen about American slavery in the early 1800s? Just picture one of those whipping scenes. That's what happened to these guys. And they go away rejoicing from it. They took a look at it and kept on ticking. Because that's just part of the Christian life and ministry when you suffer with and for the Christ who suffered first for you on a Roman cross. Even so, the point of the narrative is not so much the apostles' moral example as it is the gospel's unstoppable power under the watchful leadership of the risen Christ Jesus. The point is that Jesus overrules every attempt to confine his gospel. Who do you think sent the angel? Jesus. The whole interaction is leading up to Peter's proclamation of Jesus as leader and Savior. All Jerusalem and Judea put their sick and paralyzed out to be healed by Peter's hand as the conduit of Jesus' saving power. The authorities lay hands on Peter to put him in prison. The angel of the Lord leads Peter out of the prison. The chief priests send to the prison to have the apostles led out by their authority only to find the guards standing outside the prison and the apostles standing in the temple doing exactly what the rulers told them not to do. So the leaders have the apostles led out of the crowd and then led back to stand before the Sanhedrin. They insist that the apostles follow their lead and they complain that the apostles intend to lead everyone else to believe that Jesus' blood is on their hands. This is all about who's leading who. In response, the apostles followed God's lead rather than man's. They insist that Jesus' blood is on the priest's hands and they preach the risen Christ as leader and savior. Not themselves, and not the Sanhedrin. That is what leads the Jewish leaders to homicidal anger at the apostles, the claim that Jesus' resurrection overruled their condemnation of him and that Jesus is leader, not them. That's why they're angry. 
oh, Jesus has a kind of authority that we can't squelch? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Jesus has an, a, a kind of authority that you can't do anything about. And that authority is over you, whether you acknowledge it or not. And all of your crying and grumbling and complaining against it and arguing about it is going to do nothing. It will only prove you to be fighting against God. Because God doesn't judge you on your worldview. He judges you on His worldview. And just because you change yours doesn't mean God changes His. They don't like the idea that the Jesus they hung on a tree as once cursed by God was now risen from the dead at God's right hand and to prevent their murder of the apostles for preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Gamaliel mentions two recent leaders whose lives and movements came to nothing and suggests that the apostolic movement will probably be just like those. For the final ironic touch, instead of leading independently and instead of obeying God as the apostles do, the Jewish leaders follow and obey Gamaliel a mere man who is really just giving them a mere worldly, man-centered rationale for let's wait and see. The point of all of Acts and the point of this interaction for Peter is verse, in verse, is verse 31, God has exalted this Jesus whom you crucified to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. No matter what you still think of him. And he's still offering you repentance for the forgiveness of sins, even though you did that to him, even though you're still doing that to us. But they don't want to admit their need of repentance or forgiveness, especially not forgiveness from the Jesus they hung on a tree. In fact, Gamaliel tells them to see themselves as the dispensers of forgiveness. Still, let the apostles alone. Permit them, forgive them, let them go, stay away. the point of the whole thing, Jesus overrules every attempt to confine his gospel. So what's true because that's true? What other things are true? Implications. What other things are true because that point is true? That Jesus overrules every attempt to confine his gospel. Well, the apostolic healings attested to Jesus' bodily resurrection and cosmic rule. These healings prove Jesus really did ri rise from the dead. These kind of healings don't happen every day. They don't even happen every century. But here, Peter is seemingly repeating the kind of earthly ministry that Jesus had, healing everybody, casting out demons. They symbolize that Jesus' resurrection will one day lead our hearts to God if we trust in Christ. Jesus' resurrection will lead to our resurrection if we trust in Christ. And as much as they testify to the leadership of Peter and the apostles, the apostles themselves testify that it is Jesus who is leader and Savior, not us, not the Sanhedrin. In other words, these healings witness to Jesus' overruling authority, not over just people, but over sickness, over sin, over demons, over death, over everything, over how it is. He can turn all of that to His purposes for our glory, for His glory and our good. And He wants to. And therefore nothing will confine His purposes for His gospel in His world or in his church. Christian, you are on the right side of history and eternity, no matter what today's cultural elites say to the contrary. So press on in Christian faith, hope, love, and truth, because Jesus really is risen from the dead to be leader and savior. Jesus is not just another human leader like Thutis or Judas. The difference is Thutis and Judas stayed dead. Jesus did not stay dead. 
His tomb remains empty to this day. His apostles worked real miracles and wrote real books that testify to Jesus' truth and grace still today. Christianity is still thriving 2,000 years later while no one remembers Thutis or Judas, even though the world continues to rage against the truth of Jesus' resurrection, and even though many people don't want to admit his authority over them. Another implication, God's still sovereign. He's in control. He rules in total freedom from any any other constraint or opinion about him. He is neither contingent on us nor accountable to us. He is sovereign. You You don't get to elect him. You don't get to choose who he is or how he interacts with our world. And you realize that if you take that tack with him, you realize how arrogant that is? To think, oh, I, know, I know how Jesus should rule. I know what he should have done in this situation. I know what he should have done in my life. No, no, no. We are contingent on him. We are accountable to him. And God exercises his sovereignty over all things through his risen and reigning son, Christ Jesus. Jesus remains on the throne of the universe. When he had made atonement, when he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he did not simply keep standing there in heaven. He sat down on the throne of the universe to rule over all things. And as he is seated there, nothing threatens him. Nothing moves him. Nothing jeopardizes him. Nothing worries him. He is perfectly in control. He is not pacing back and forth, wondering what to do next or wringing his hands over all that worries you or offends you. He's not jumping up and down. He's not standing in suspense or surprise, wondering what might happen next. He is seated in perfect honor and poise. He presides over all things, even over his enemies. And Ephesians 1 goes so far as to say God has given him as head over all things for the church. Not just as head over the church in all things that pertain to our kind of internal life together. No, no, no. He's given Jesus as head over all things out there and in here to do good to the church for the church's benefit. Even when we cannot see how his rule over specific things will work out for our good. And there's a lot of those things in all of our lives. He has told us in his word that they will work out for the good. Jesus is the one who makes all things work to the good of those who love him. It is our wisdom then to love him for all that he reveals himself to be in Scripture, not to criticize him for what he has not revealed about his methods and reasons for ruling as he does. I'm sure the apostles could have, if they allowed themselves, they could have asked a whole lot of dishonoring questions about why God let them get whipped 39 times in front of people who don't believe in Jesus. But that's not how it went. Because they believed that Jesus is sovereign. And they believed that it is a privilege to suffer with him, for him. And they believed that the secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29. But the things revealed in God's word belong to us forever. Another implication, human leaders are never as powerful as they think. Because Jesus overrules every attempt to confine his gospel, the Jewish leaders are impotent. They are powerless to stop the spread of this gospel, no matter how hard they try. They do not view themselves as impotent. They view themselves as power brokers and powerful. But every time they try to lead, their purposes are frustrated, and God's purposes are the ones that stand in Christ. 
The apostles don't stay put in prison. The angel leads them out. The apostles don't obey the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin obeys Gamaliel. And God does not cooperate with the Sanhedrin. He commissions the apostles. It's not that human authority is bad always. Human authority is instituted by God. But human authority often considers itself ultimate when in fact it is not. Jesus, Jesus is ultimate. And so his purposes for his gospel and for his people will never be frustrated. Either by unbelieving authority outside the church or by misguided or corrupt religious authority inside the church. Jesus' purposes will stand. And even corrupt use of authority among God's people, against God's people, will be turned by Jesus' sovereignty to your eternal good. That's how you come out of a beating, rejoicing. That's how. It is the only way. The gospel, then, cannot be confined by human opposition. Our text makes human opposition to the gospel look absolutely ridiculous and even laughable. Luke wants you to laugh at what's going on here. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's funny. The leaders imprison the apostles only to see them busted out by an angel. Even one of their own tells them, if this movement is from God, you're not going to be able to overthrow these guys. And Gamaliel was right because the rest of Acts is actually the story of the irrepressible word of Christ spreading all over the world over against every obstacle and objection presented against it. Stephen's martyrdom in chapter 7, which the Jewish authorities took as such a win, leads us to church-wide persecution in chapter 8 that scatters the church all over Judea and Samaria to do evangelism and church planting and to see gospel growth. Ha-ha! So much for opposition to the gospel. So much for anger at Jesus and what He does in the world. So much for resentment and jealousy of people who don't like Jesus' authority and those who represent it. The scattering of Jesus' disciples results not in the destruction of the movement, but in the diffusion, the spread of the movement from Jerusalem to Judea and all Samaria to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said beforehand in Acts 1-8 would happen. It's all going according to to his plan because Jesus reigns over all whether people like it or not whether people fight it or not and that is why Paul can encourage us from his prison cell remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal but the word of God is not bound you put me in prison you won't ever put the gospel in prison. He can even say in Philippians 1, 12 to 14 that his own imprisonment for the gospel has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I'm kind of glad I got arrested. I'm kind of glad I got put in prison because man, the gospel is going even faster now. Jesus will overcome every attempt to confine his gospel because Jesus reigns supreme over every attempt to confine his gospel. And did you notice that repentance from sin is a gift from God, not just a duty for man? You notice this? What Peter said to the Sanhedrin? It's an implication of the fact that Jesus overrules all 
attempts to confine his gospel. That point is true not just globally or politically or regionally or in churches or among ethnic groups. It's true individually. It's true of you. Jesus is the one who overcomes our own resistance to the gospel and actually gives us repentance and faith that we would never exercise if we were left to our natural selves. Peter preached this, 531. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. There it is. This isn't the first time Peter's preached this, though. He said the same thing in 326. God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's giving repentance, turning you. He turns you so that you want to repent. Nor is the gift of repentance only for Jews. When Peter reports the conversion of Cornelius and the Gentiles back to the churches, their response in Acts eleven eighteen is they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance is a gift. Paul says the same thing, 2 Timothy two twenty five. The Lord's servant should not be quarrelsome but kind, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? Because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Friends, this should encourage all of us. God is generous. He gives what he requires. He gives as a gift the repentance that he commands as a duty. And that offer is to be preached even to those who are still jealous of Jesus and his apostles. Jesus is that generous. That's why we should keep being faith-filled in our evangelism. That's why you shouldn't be an evangelistic pessimist. We know that no one will ever repent from their old nature just because we speak the gospel to them. The old nature doesn't repent. But Jesus loves to give sinners repentance from his throne in heaven. So let's trust Jesus to do that and keep on proclaiming his word with boldness. Another implication, God answers our prayers. Because Jesus overrules all opposition to his gospel, he is also able to answer our prayers for bold evangelism, conversions, and the spread of the gospel even in the middle of an increasingly hostile environment that hates Jesus and how he wants us to live and talk and obey him. The miracles of 512 answer the church's prayers from Acts 4. They prayed for power and boldness, and they got it. Church, we can and should pray that God will fill us with His Spirit so that we are bold and persuasive in our evangelism by His power, not our own. Another implication, church growth, church discipline, church persecution, those all actually normally happen at the same time. Look at all that's happening just in Acts 5. You got Ananias and Sapphira ruining church unity from within, Jewish persecution of the church from the outside, and apostolic miracles testifying to Jesus' resurrection, and multitudes of men and women coming to faith in Jesus Christ, all at the same time. <clears throat> that is biblical realism. It is not idealism. I don't know why any of us are waiting for a time in the life of the church where everything's going great. You're setting yourself up for disappointment and disillusionment. You shouldn't do that. Things are going to get hard. Things are going to get ugly. Things are going to get hurtful and sad. And the gospel is going to keep on going out. Now, what are you going to do when things get sad? Are you going to get all disillusioned and down and sad and Debbie Downer on everything and be like, ah, I don't know. It's not going like I thought. I got hurt. They said something to me that hurt my feelings. They took something away. They did this. They did that. They whipped me. They put me in prison. They made my back bleed. I didn't think I was going to have to suffer like this. Yeah, well, what did you think? What did you think God was promising you? What did you think Jesus was going to do? Make you healthy and wealthy? You see, there is a health and wealth, prosperity gospel lurking in your heart, even the kind of heart that wants to come to a church like this who preaches against the prosperity gospel. 
It's evident in your expectations and in your response when things don't go your way. And now you want to get angry at God. Hey, man. (laughs) That's not what it means to be a Christian. You got to buck up. You got to have faith in Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ is doing something so wise that your little puny mind can't handle it. I really want to make a reference to Jack Nicholson, but I'm going to exercise some self-control. Applications. Moral application to jealousy. Jealousy. Coveting. Coveting first wants what's not ours to have. It wants what God gave someone else. Jealousy then thinks Self is more deserving of what others have than they are. And envy finally resents others for having what we think we deserve more. The Jews are jealous of the apostles' authority and popularity with the people. They think they deserve the attention and respect that the apostles are now enjoying. Their jealousy leads them to abuse their own power, distort justice, and almost leads them to murder had Gamaliel not persuaded them otherwise. But the Jews are also jealous for their own position and authority because the apostles are stepping on their turf. Being jealous of is always wrong. You can't be jealous of somebody else in a righteous way. Because you're saying, God, you were wrong to give them that because I deserve that more. That's what jealousy is. Now, you can be jealous for something in a good way. A husband should be jealous for his wife's fidelity and purity and vice versa. But here, being jealous for your own political power and social standing, that's wrong. They feel threatened. But they're not just insecure. They're offended that others are getting the respect, submission, attention, and affection that they assumed was theirs by right. They're jealous of the apostles and their jealousy for their own position of power that was eating them alive. And that kind of attitude towards the apostles meant they were in fact fighting against God himself just as Gamaliel warned them. But their jealousy actually extended to Jesus himself. After all, the apostles are just Jesus' representatives, his messengers. Now we may not say it out loud, but we struggle with being jealous of Jesus anytime we take issue with his providence over our lives. We think that we are more deserving of his authority over our lives than he is. I want that. Jesus, stop doing that I want that authority that you have over my life because I think I'm going to do something better with it than you're doing right now because what you're doing hurts me. We are not so different from the Jewish leaders as we think. We need to watch and pray against being jealous of Jesus' authority and jealous for our own perceived authority over our lives, which Jesus threatens. Jesus deserves authority over us and over the world more than we do. That is actually why he came down from heaven in the first place, because we misused and abused our authority. Adam was jealous of God's authority. That's how this whole sin thing began. I want authority, Adam said, to to decide right and wrong for myself, because I don't think you deserve that authority, because I think you're holding out on me. I mean, I think Satan's right. You just don't want me to be as much like you as I want to be like you. You're holding me down. You're holding me back. You're stunting my growth. You're prohibiting me from achieving my full potential. I want that authority to determine good and evil for myself. And that jealousy plunged the world into sin and damnation. But God sent Jesus to live a life free of jealousy. Jesus was content only to do and say whatever the Father commanded him to do and say. And only that. Jesus learned good and evil by obedience, not by disobedience. That's why he deserves authority over us in the world more than we deserve it. Because he proved that he would live a sinless human life that never expressed any jealousy but only contentment with his Father's will. And that's why we should be grateful for Jesus' authority over us and not jealous of it. 
Non-Christian, don't fight against God. Unbelief does not negate God's existence. It only makes you his enemy. And you cannot win that fight. No matter how justified you think you are in your opinion or in your rejection of him. And Christian, be bold in your evangelism. Christians can and should be bold and fearless in evangelism. The church and the apostles prayed for boldness in chapter 4. And boy, did God ever give it to them. They trusted Jesus to overrule and superintend every attempt to confine his gospel. That trust was the root of their boldness. Is it the root of yours? Western evangelicals should learn to rejoice in suffering shame with Christ rather than seeking honor from the world. We've got to learn this. Enduring shame with and for Jesus is a privilege. The apostles went away from the 39 lashings rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored for the name because they loved him. And therefore, they wanted the whole world to know whose side they were on, no matter what it cost them. Jesus' power is not made perfect in our power. It is made perfect in our weakness. Jesus is honored most, not in our honor, but in our dishonor with him. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him as a gift, faith is a gift, but also suffer for his sake. That also has been granted to you as a gift and privilege. But that's not likely to make it on the life verse list, is it? Suffering for Jesus' sake is a gift in the same way believing in him is a gift. And Paul said in Philippians 3.10, he wanted to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that, we may, that I may by any means possible attain to the resurrection from the dead. There is a fellowship with Jesus that you only know through suffering with him and for his sake. Do you love him enough to want to know him that well? Or are you happy with just a little bit of Jesus in your life to make you feel better about yourself? With just a moderate closeness to Jesus. Yeah, I'm acquainted with him. Friend, you will only know the power of his resurrection if you first know the fellowship of his sufferings. And that is a privilege. Brother, sister, you count it a privilege when someone in this church welcomes you to walk with them through a difficulty in their life, Right? Hey, thanks for letting me into that. Thank you for, for opening yourself up to me. Thank you for letting me walk with you through that hardship. Thank you for letting me cry with you. Well, it is similar in suffering with Christ. It's a privilege when Jesus welcomes you into his own rejection, his own sorrows, his own loneliness and humiliation, his rejection by people who should have known better. And until you do that, you only know about Jesus. And once you suffer with him, for him, then you know him. You know just a little of what it's like to be him in relation to a sinful world that hates him. And that, that is a privilege. Friends, I wonder what version of good news actually sounds good to you. Is it really good news that we are free to define ourselves by our favorite social and sexual vices? We Christians hope you come to see that as good news, even though we rebelled against God, he sent Jesus to perfectly obey all the laws we broke and to perfectly endure the curse we deserved for breaking those laws in order to reconcile us to the God who created us to be holy and righteous like him. That is a real good news. And because it is, it's also good news that Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, overrules and superintends every attempt to confine his gospel. Jesus 
overruling sovereignty is itself good news because he himself is the only one worthy of exercising that kind of authority over all things. Jesus will not let his gospel or his church finally fail. And if you are a Christian, he will not let your faith finally fail. And still today, he extends from heaven the gift of repentance even to those who are presently trying to confine and control the spread of his good news either to other people or into their own hearts. But he will not extend the offer forever. One day he will return to judge all those who refuse to repent and he will save those who trust him. Is that good news to you? It doesn't make you want to change the channel. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are far more like the Jewish leaders than we suppose. We are jealous of Jesus' authority over all things, over us. And we sheepishly wonder how in the world could these apostles go away from such a painful beating, rejoicing to suffer dishonor for your name. But that is to our shame, not theirs. Help us to realize that they love Jesus, that Jesus is worthy of love and loyalty and respect and all suffering because he suffered for us. He suffered our shame in our place for our sins. He endured your curse. He endured the shame that Adam felt when he covered himself after his sin. So we pray would you fill our hearts with love for Christ that considers it a great privilege to suffer dishonor for him. Help us to understand when that's going on and to feel rightly about it. May we not fight against you. But may we continue to boldly profess that Jesus is the Christ. And he is on his throne. And nothing will confine his good news in our hearts or the hearts of others yet to believe in him. Exalt this Jesus among us, we pray, in our lives, in our proclamation, and in this church. For his sake, amen.